Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So you might notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another accomplished creative woman. The power of documentaries to educate, expose, inspire, and empower us is certainly not lost on filmmaker Nessa Azimi, my guest today. During the last 10 years, she has worked on more than a dozen docs on a wide range of subjects. One of them, an investigation into the Firestone Corporation's relationship with war criminal Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia. Nessa began her career as an intern at the Maisel's Documentary Center in Harlem and has subsequently worked for Rain Media, the PBS series Frontline, Al Jazeera America, National Geographic, and the Cine Institute of Haiti. Three films she co-produced for Frontline received a pair of Emmys, an Investigative Reporters and Editor Award, and a Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. Nessa's latest project, Driver, is her first feature. The film follows the community of women who work as long-haul truckers and the obstacles and challenges they routinely encounter, many of whom are victims of sexual violence. Nessa's work has been recognized by several organizations, including Tribeca, Hot Dogs, and the Athena Film Festival's Works in Progress program. So it's me to get to know Nessa Azimi. Welcome, and thanks for joining me remotely today. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for having me. So, Nessa, I like to start at the beginning. What made you decide you wanted to tell stories? When you were growing up, did you have a thing for movies? Was this sort of in your DNA? I did. When I was a kid, I watched a lot of movies. We recorded, with my sister, we recorded old black and white movies from television on VHS tapes and had a collection of old films that we would watch over and over. So I wasn't necessarily watching documentaries as a kid, but definitely cinema has always been very important to me. So I kind of fell into documentary in a weird way because I studied politics and history in school. And when I moved to New York, I somehow just entered this world of current affairs documentaries that was very specific. Where'd you grow up? I grew up mostly in California and a little bit in Switzerland. Ah, did you come to New York to go to school? I actually moved to New York with no plan whatsoever. And my sister had been living here and I moved just right after school. And I luckily ended up landing with the Maisel's family. They run a cinema in Harlem. And I started working there as an intern and just kind of found a home through them. They were very generous with me and just... That was my introduction to New York, was starting in the summer as an intern at the Maisel's Documentary Center in Harlem. That really must have been so important because of what they did and who they documented, Jackie Kennedy's relatives. Yeah, it was just amazing. They have a building in Harlem where Maisel's Films was still operating on the top floor. Al Maisel's was still around at the time and well into his 80s, continuing to make films. So that just being in proximity to him was incredibly amazing. And by being around him, you're around all of those people who he spent his life filming, right? Like, so I was constantly taking in that history. And so I think that was probably the biggest inspiration for 
sticking in documentary was just being in in that realm with them. What films did you work on with them? I didn't actually work with Maisel's films, so I would just go upstairs and sit behind Al's desk and he would interview me and ask me questions. And we'd have these really long conversations. But I was an intern with the cinema downstairs. So they basically started a documentary center in Harlem that does a combination of education for kids in the neighborhood. And then also they run a cinema for for the community and have a, a mixture of films that they curate. So I was working in mostly programming for the cinema. What year was that, Nessa? That was in 2010. You left the Maisels, and then what happened? Well, actually, Al Maisels introduced me. He knew just before I'd moved to New York, I'd spent some time in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, just traveling. I had family living there. So I spent a little bit of time there, and I know that from our conversations, Al knew that I was really in love with Haiti. And he happened to have a friend. He and Jillian, his wife, had a friend who... Um, her name's Catherine Keane, and she had spent years and years in Haiti as a documentarian, but also just a friend to various, you know, prominent political figures in Haiti throughout the 80s and 90s, and, you know, very close friends with Aristide, and just Mm. doing incredible work documenting Haiti's political history. So he put me in touch with Catherine Keane, and he said, you should just go work with KK, that's her name, and David Bell. And David Bell at the time was running a film school in Jacmel in southern Haiti. So I just went and I met them and I ended up working with them for a couple of years after I left Maisel's. Um, and that was thanks to, thanks to Al. So I spent time um, in the New York office and sometimes traveling to Port-au-Prince to basically work on this film school. And also digitize this incredible archive of tapes that KK had gathered over the years, kind of, you know, documenting some of these really important moments in Haitian history. You know, somehow one doesn't necessarily connect Haiti with cinema. Yeah, it, I mean, it does have an incredible kind of cinematic history, but definitely not, you know, especially like with the earthquake, I think that a lot of the Haitian archives have just, you know, disappeared. And with all of the kind of political upheaval, it's hard to keep track of of some of the history. But I think that, you know, this archive that KK is now digitizing, I think, I'm not sure where it's going to end up. I think maybe at Duke University, but I think it will definitely be an incredible archive. How did you go from place to place? And what and when did you think you wanted to be behind the camera? Yeah, so I mean, just after I spent time at Maisel's and working for the Cine Institute, I wanted to be in the realm of current affairs because there was a lot of exciting stuff happening around the time. It was like 2011, Hosni Mubarak had just fallen and it was this incredible moment of energy in the Middle East and possibility. And I was just glued to Al Jazeera English 24-7, like a lot of people I knew at the time. And my sister had connections to Cairo. So I had a lot of friends in Egypt during the revolution. And I think that just really energized me that moment. And I I felt like I want to be doing some sort of reporting that's related to what's happening. So, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time in Cairo while everything was unfolding. I, I made a few trips, but I ended up working 
with Charlie Rose as an intern. That was huh. kind of in the middle of working at the Cine Institute. Yeah. I started working as an intern with Charlie Rose and he was doing, you know, he was doing a lot of work around what was happening in the Middle East. So for me, that just felt like an incredible moment to be working with Charlie. And then from there, not long after, I ended up meeting Marcella Gaviria, who runs Rain Media. And she and her husband, Martin Smith, had been running Rain Media for almost two decades. It was one of the first frontline production companies based in New York. And they sort they started like around frontline worlds. So they were doing some of the really first, you know, current affairs documentary work in for PBS. And so I, I started working with them on a documentary, again, about what was happening in Syria at the time. And it was a film about Assad that we were working on. And as I started as an archivalist and then ended up staying on for about three years as an associate producer and worked with them on a number of films from, you know, covering events in the Middle East and then also the, the film in Liberia and a number of other programs. So that was my trajectory. I just kind of <laughs> stayed in this world because I definitely had gotten it in my head that I wanted to work with Marcella and Marty and I liked their work and I really respected them as journalists. So I just wrote them for every several weeks and months. I would write them and see, you know, do you have any work for me? I want to come work with you. And I was just very straightforward. And being a small production company, it's hard to find a job in New York you know, working for one of these companies where it's often just like three people on staff. But somehow I managed to get to them at the right time when they were doing this quick turnaround Syria piece. And that's how I just kind of inserted myself <laughs> into their into their production company and stayed around. Rain Media led you to Frontline? Rain Media is actually an independent production company based in New York, which is devoted basically to producing Frontlines. So Frontline has been working with Rain Media since its inception. Um, since Frontline began, they've been working with Rain Media. And so they produce two to four documentaries each year for Frontline, and they don't do any other work. It's just exclusively a Frontline production company. So that's where I was working for Frontline, was with Rain Media. And then came Al Jazeera America? Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, just because of all of the energy of what was happening in the Middle East and because I had long looked to Al Jazeera English as a source for, you know, good reporting, solid reporting from the region. So Al Jazeera America was launched and I just, my dream was always to work for Al Jazeera. So there was a program on Al Jazeera called Fault Lines, which I really, really respected. And I knew the journalists who worked there. And again, I just, I told them I really wanted to work with them. And I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. and worked on staff for Fault Lines as a producer for about a little over a year. And it was a really amazing time. And then Al Jazeera America just went kaput. So the staff of that show got cut from like 18 to 3 in a matter of days. So <laughs> that was kind of, it was a sad ending. But but while I was there, it was an incredible place and it was an, an opportunity for me to actually start taking on producing on my own and taking the lead as a producer um, and being around people who are doing some really, really solid reporting and I think some of the best, you know, best reporting around. 
Was there ever an issue about you being female and working for Al Jazeera? And forgive me for, you know, going down the stereotype route. So Al Jazeera America and Al Jazeera English shared an office in Washington, D.C. And for all intents and purposes, the show was, it was both an Al Jazeera English production and Al Jazeera America. And I felt, I mean, that was definitely not an issue. I mean, actually more than anywhere I'd ever worked, it was just an incredible mix of people, ages, people from so many different backgrounds. I think like the fact that you would walk down the hallway in the newsroom and see, you know, there were people in their 60s, 70s, there were, you know, really young kids working on the stream. There were people just of all ages and backgrounds. And I found that so incredibly inspiring and freeing. And the person who was running Fault Lines at the time is Matt Skeen, who has since gone on to run The Daily Show for the oh. New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just had an incredible way of building a team of people, which was actually mostly women, I think, huh. um, producers, who it was just an, an incredible community of people. And I feel so fortunate to have gotten the chance to work with all of them. And we're all still friends and everyone's kind of gone on to, some of them are still at Fault Lines and some have gone on to go on the weekly at the New York Times. Yeah. So I, as I said in the introduction, that three of the films that you were involved with for Frontline won some awards. What were the topics? One of the films that I worked on with Frontline that got some recognition was Firestone and the Warlord. And it was a co-production with ProPublica. So it was one of the early collaborations between ProPublica and Frontline. And it was an investigation that was brought to Frontline by a journalist called Jonathan Jones, and then also a a team of ProPublica journalists. And basically, we ended up going on this journey of trying to unravel a period in history where the Firestone Company was doing business in Liberia for years and years. And they happened to be there, of course, during the course of the Civil War, the Liberian Civil War. And at the time, Charles Taylor was not yet known as a criminal. He was seen as a liberator. And, you know, he was this extremely charismatic, you know, well-dressed and magnetic personality that I think at the time people didn't really have a sense of all of the terrible things that were going to happen. So we just basically went on this journey of trying to unravel what was happening during the course of the Civil War while the Firestone Company was operating a rubber plantation in Liberia. And we used, you know, a collection of sources. We had people who had been working at the Firestone Corporation during the course of the Civil War who stayed on, um, even though most Americans had been evacuated by that time. And so we had interviews with them. We also had a number of archival sources that I dug up. There weren't a lot of people filming during the Civil War in Liberia. So that was kind of one of the most incredible things was like unearthing this amazing archive of material that ABC had happened to have in their archives that hadn't actually been labeled properly and was not even fully digitized. And so there was an element of discovery where we were learning a lot of things for the first time. I'm struck by the fact that nothing kind of stood in your way, Nessa. Was the world your oyster occupationally? I had an interest in all of these places, and I happened to have the good fortune to be working with people who were committed to reporting from those regions. And so it was, I was just kind of along for the ride. I mean, I definitely wanted to put myself in the right place to be able to do the work that I felt was important for me. But, 
you know, it's a combination of just good fortune of like having the fortune of being in New York and having access to all of these people. And was most of your work as a producer back then? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of producing and in television, I worked mostly on really tiny teams for Frontline where it was just myself, Marcella, Marty, and perhaps, you know, an editor, cinematographer, sometimes one other field producer. So it was usually a team of like one to five people and I was doing producing work, but at Frontline and for a company like Rain Media, that basically means doing, you know, you just have to be prepared to do everything. So it means, you know, from research to field producing to actually having interviews and to being out in the field and filming to all of the kind of archival research. It's basically just encompasses everything. And I found that as I moved to places where there were sort of bigger staffs, all of those roles kind of got broken up a little bit. Mm. But yeah, I was primarily producing and mostly in a supporting role for Frontline. And then at Fault Lines, that was sort of the first time that I began producing and directing on my own. And then after Al Jazeera America collapsed, I moved back to New York City and I did, you know, a number of just kind of freelance television work. I started working at National Geographic for a program called Explorer, and that lasted for about a year. And I was producing and directing for them. And then after that, I just decided I want to make my own film and not work in television for a while and just take a break. So that's how Driver started. What prompted that? How was that seed planted? Just having worked in television, I felt like I never really had a chance to make something of my own because I was always working sort of within a pretty strict format of whatever program that I was producing for. So I came across a radio story at one point when I was working at National Geographic, and it was um, a reporter talking about sort of the rampant sexual assault in truck driver training programs. And I just never imagined, I'd never really thought about truck drivers. I'd never thought about like, where do people sleep in a truck? Do they sleep in a trailer? Do they sleep in a cab? I'd never like imagine that space of the cab of a truck and how tiny it is. And just learning the fact that women have to spend 30 days or more living in the cab of a truck with a complete stranger who is their teacher. And that one person has basically all of the power to either pass or fail them and determine whether or not they'll become a truck driver. So just that premise of how one becomes a truck driver, I was so fascinated and I kind of just wondered who and who would ever choose to go through that. What would drive someone to actually want to become a truck driver if you have to like share this tiny space with another human being? Um, and you know, a lot of the bad things can happen in the cab of a truck. So that was just the opening. And then I started looking into trucking communities online and trying to find like what sorts of communities exist for women on the road. And then that's when I came across someone called Desiree Wood, who's a really outspoken truck driver and organizer. And she had listed her phone number online. So I called her one night and we ended up speaking for several hours. And then that was just, that was the start. <laughs> but did you know that there were female long haul truckers? I didn't. I had seen like some depictions of women truck drivers, but maybe like very few, very few and far between. Like there aren't very many popular depictions of women on the road. And I'd never seen any films about women truckers. I'd never really thought about them at all. And I hadn't seen one myself. And also there's another thing, like 
when trucks pass on the highway or on the road, I feel like we don't actually look up in the cab and look at who's driving. There's a way that they're sort of drivers are a little bit invisible, even though they're driving these giant vehicles. So yeah, I hadn't really thought of it. I just assumed that being a truck driver was a very solitary existence. You know, it really is. But in terms of just getting on the road, people, in order to get your commercial driver's license, you have to go to a school, which is either run by, you know, a community college, or it's actually one of these big private trucking companies who have, they have various, you know, commercial driver's license schools. And they call them like CDL mills, because just thousands and thousands and thousands of people go through them every year. Trucking has an enormous turnover rate and the training programs are often just like famously terrible and very quick. Like people just get a license, like it's nothing. But the difficult part is actually when you have to spend that time with a trainer in the, in the cab of a truck. And that again, like some companies will, you know, people have to drive with a co-driver for maybe 30 days. And some companies will actually have a team driving model where just part of the profitability is based on continuing to be able to roll no matter what. So there's one person sleeping in the back and there's one person driving at all times the cab is moving. So there are that that is an increasingly common setup, team driving. But for the most part, it is very solitary. Um, and what's remarkable about Desiree and this community of women that she's organized is that they, while they're very solitary and they're all spread out across the country, they have this incredible network where they're on phone calls together. They, you know, they track each other on maps and can meet on the highway uh, and have lunch together and then get back on the truck. Or they like come together every few months and make a real effort to to build community and and nurture their friendships. When did um, the industry start to accept women or was that always from the get-go? Well, some of the women I have been filming with have been on the road, like Idella Hansen. She is a pioneer driver. She's been on the road for about 50 years, I think, a little over 50 years. So she started in her 20s and still doing, yeah, long haul truck driving. Now her co-driver is her grandson. So they drive together. Uh And yeah, I mean, the industry was open to women to some extent, but it wasn't very common to see a woman on the road. Like most of the women I've been filming with who've been around a long time say that they really rarely saw women in the 60s, 70s. I think more in the 80s, probably women started to trickle in. But even now, it's like six or seven percent, I think, of of all truck drivers are women. Um, So you do see women on the road. And companies are really targeting women for recruitment. Like they have made a concerted effort to recruit women into the industry. And what year was it that you got that seed planted that you wanted to do this? So I found Desiree in 2018. And then she basically told me that she and a group of truck drivers were going to go on a cruise. And invited us to get on the cruise ship with their group. And that was sort of the first time that we filmed with her and with this incredible group of women. And that's so I've been... Is that... I mean, that's not <laughs> typical, is it? <laughs> no, it's definitely not, which is what convinced me that we just had to do it. It's like an annual cruise that she organizes where she and about 20 or 30 other women 
just take, you know, they just shut down and relax. And for once, they're just kind of allowed to do nothing. And it was a really incredible time. And that was what just launched everything. And so I've been filming on and off with Desiree and this group of women. And now, obviously, we're not filming because of the pandemic. But um, I hope to finish filming this year. And so was this taking you all over the place? Yeah, we've traveled the country. And I still want to see more of the country. There are still parts of the country that I haven't gotten to see. But it, it has been, yeah, I've seen more of the United States than I'd ever seen before. So it's been incredible in that sense. What kind of crew do you have? Very slim. So it's just myself and a cinematographer and sometimes just me filming. And I run sound myself. So it's, you know, I'm accustomed to having a small team and especially in the cab of a truck it's like you don't want to try and squeeze more than one or two people in there um, <laughs> so yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty slim team how receptive were the women to you well i mean one thing that really struck me was so when i first spoke with desiree i asked her if she would put me in touch with other women just to start to have conversations with them on the phone and try and learn a little bit more about what their lives were like at first, they were a little suspicious of me, like, who is this, you know, especially not being a truck driver, right? having no idea who I am. Uh, a little bit suspicious, maybe untrusting at first, and then very quickly, like, within the course of the phone call, would just talk to me for hours and hours and hours. I mean, to the point where I have a friend, Ann Bailey, who... She's an author and a former truck driver, and she wrote an oral history called Semi-Queer, it's inside the world of gay, trans, and black truck drivers. And she and I joke because she, you know, she spent a lot of time with truck drivers writing this book. And her phone calls would go on for so long that sometimes she would just take a nap in the middle of the call and then wake up and people would still be talking. It was huh. like this need to constantly talk because of the solitude, because like, I think a lot of drivers feel like they aren't seen and they aren't heard. So for me, it was just natural. It was like people wanted to talk to me and they, they do, you know, they, they have a lot to say and feel unseen. So that makes it really easy. And I've become friends with all of them at this point because, you know, I've just forcefully <laughs> inserted myself in their lives. I mean, hopefully delicately, but yeah, we've, we've become friends. So I can't imagine what the issue when it comes to sexual violence must be like and to feel that you don't have a voice. Is it ubiquitous among female drivers? I think that it's not ubiquitous at all. I mean, I, I know that all women on the road have felt some sense of danger, whether that's because they have to park at a truck stop where the lighting, there's no lighting, right? And truck stops are, you know, they're dark. They are often in isolated parts of the country. And even just like when your truck is parked mere inches away from the next truck, you have to get out of the truck at night to go to the bathroom. It's like, it is a little bit scary um, when you can't see anything. But I think most of the danger that women experience in terms of like sexual assault, it's not happening in the day to day. Like once you get beyond that training period, it's not like every day people are getting sexually harassed and assaulted on the job. It's mostly in that kind of narrow window where people are trying to become truck drivers. Um, so during the course of the training, when they're very vulnerable and in the cab of the truck with a stranger, and just the power dynamics there are pretty um, intense. So 
the emphasis is really for Desiree, I think, in her in her organizing is about improving the training programs and making them safer for women so that they can go on to become truck drivers and stay in the industry and have careers and lives. What's it like in terms of being a female truck driver and having a family and having to leave your children? And not that that isn't tough mm-hmm. for a man, but I just wonder if it's even, even a bigger burden for females. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, a, a few of the women who I've been filming with have actually, their children are grown and they started driving. It was you know, a, a choice that they made later in life. And it was kind of a way for them to just have a life of their own for the first time. And I think that's part of what draws a lot of women is it's just an opportunity to like make your own life and, and to be independent and to not be tied down to a house and a husband and kind of some of the stresses of, you know, domestic life. But for people who do have children and who are on the road, I mean, it's incredibly difficult because you are always on the road. It's like, there's very little home time. Even if you're driving locally or regionally, you end up sleeping less actually, and probably seeing people even less than if you're a long haul trucker. But most long haul truckers, they come home and they have 36 hours to reset and then they're back on the road. Wow. That's that soon? That short? Yeah. I mean, some people might take, you know, two days or three, but for the most part, people, I mean, just in order to even keep a living, right? Like to make a living, you just keep moving. So and drivers get paid by the mile. They don't get paid by the hour. So there is definitely this pressure to just keep moving all the time. So if you're not driving, you're not getting paid. Yep. You're not. You know, not for nothing in terms of where we stand today. Aren't these the people who we rely on so much during this pandemic? Making this film, it's fortunate in the sense that it still feels very relevant to me and more urgent than ever to make a film about the people who are keeping the country going. And really, you know, they are quite invisible. They're a workforce that people don't really notice or think about. And yet like all of the freight in this country is moved by truck drivers. I think it's like 80% of goods that we rely on are moved by truck. So right now, even though we're not filming, we're working closely with Desiree and other drivers to document the impact of the pandemic on their daily lives. And, you know, I mean, a lot of them say their lives haven't changed that much because they just are continuing to roll and move and move freight. And it's not terribly different. But, you know, there are problems like truck stops are shutting down, rest areas are shutting down. It's difficult for some drivers to access food, showers, bathrooms, like basic human necessities. So Desiree has been putting pressure on elected officials and truck stops to reopen and allow drivers to access some of these basic services while they're, you know, moving freight for the country. So I think it's an incredible time in the sense that it just really, you know, throws into relief the vital role that drivers are playing. What's it been like to raise money for this film or just to be an independent person and get funds? Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible learning experience in the sense that like having worked in television, you're just given money, right? Like you don't think about budget, you don't think about, there's nothing stopping you from actually just going out and shooting. So it's a little bit of a different experience because it took me a long time to kind of understand the landscape for independent filmmakers, which is just completely different from anything I've ever 
done in my life. So yeah, a lot of people say it's like running a small business. Like it's a lot of learning about fundraising and grant writing and things that I'd never really done. And I think, yeah, I mean, we've been lucky because this film has gotten a tremendous amount of institutional support. And I think that the subject is interesting for people. And, you know, it's thankfully something that people want to see. So that's made it a little bit easier, but it definitely took some time for me to just adjust to fundraising and writing grants and yeah, looking for money and proving the worth of a project. Um, and it's still hard, you know, it's, it's hard. Have you been working on other projects while you're doing this? Um, not this year. This year I've just been completely focused on this film. It's really a full-time job. <laughs> what is it that you haven't done that you want to do? I would ideally like to keep making documentaries um, independently. And, you know, I think that because this is the first feature that I'm making, that it, you know, it takes a lot of work to kind of sustain an independent practice. So right now I'm just trying to figure out how to do that. But I think it's about just constantly developing ideas and not just fixating on one thing and kind of being as dynamic as possible. So I am already starting to think about what's next after this. But yeah, I want to keep making films. I do sometimes think that I want to be a truck driver just really? to try it out, just to try it out. Like there's definitely this, you know, having worked on this film, I feel like it would be an incredible experience to actually drive the truck. And I haven't done that yet. I've sat in the driver's seat, but it feels like it's calling to me. Well, um, Nessa, it was really great to meet you and hear all about your passions and your accomplishments. And you'll let us know when driver, no pun intended, hits the road. <laughs> Definitely, I will. Thank you so much for having me. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>